Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Powerful Curriculum, a podcast all about the power of a knowledge-rich curriculum. My name is AJ Smith and my guest this week was Neil Armand. Neil is a primary teacher and he is such a fresh voice on the primary curriculum, someone who really inspired me to make the leap from secondary to primary. We actually cover a number of topics uh, which I think will be useful obviously to primary teachers but also to anyone uh, in secondary who has an interest in how the humanities in particular are taught in primary. We look at Neil's excellent metaphor of the box set curriculum uh, and we talk about how far that metaphor can stretch. We look at the foundation subjects and in particular the humanities and the place that they take in the primary curriculum and we spoke about some topics in primary history, geography and RE that we love and we want to see uh, some expansion on and some that we would do away with. Hope this conversation is really interesting to you. Let's hand it over to Neil and myself, recorded earlier today. Welcome Neil Armand to <coughs> Powerful Curriculum. It's a real pleasure to have you here. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. We're going to tackle some of those really thorny issues in education, those really big questions that we like to talk about in RE. Um, so we're going to start off with the, the the eternal question, well, eternal for the last five years when they become popular, uh, whiteboard or visualiser? I have to go whiteboard only because I've actually, and this is a powerful curriculum kind of first, I've never actually taught with a visualiser as in just having a visualiser. That so, is genuinely shocking, Neil. That is genuinely shocking. Just out of, you know, we didn't have them. So, oh. and I, yeah, I don't know. It kind of all got, the visualizer craze kind of happened as soon as I was just about getting out of the classroom. Mm. I would love to go back in and just, you know, sack off the, um, interactive, the interactive whiteboard and be like, right, you know, only have a visualizer, yeah. like make it work. I'd love that challenge. I don't, I don't personally, I don't use a visualizer. I use my iPad in, instead of a visualizer. So uh, that would be one in the same, right? Yeah. You're just writing and it shows up on the screen. So I guess you're doing, I mean, the main thing is you don't have to have your back to the, to the kids, which is always great. Um, exercise book or booklet? Definitely booklet. You can just okay. get a bit of line paper if they need to expand on uh, a question or whatever. A common kind of criticism I have is that, oh, you know, it kind of like restricts how much they can write. No, you just get another piece of lined paper and you just paper clip it or uh, staple it at the top. It's, yeah, uh, or just it's include, like, you can include five sheets of lined paper at the end of the booklet. That's why that's my sort of new, I'm bringing nice. it to the table as an idea. Um, good. Uh, textbook or textbook or PowerPoint? Only because I've never seen like a textbook I'm actually ever happy about. I, I go PowerPoint. Uh -huh. Interesting, interesting. Um, parents' evening or open evening? Parents' evening. Okay. You're just not a fan of open evening? Because I love open evening. I tell you, maybe it's just like my experiences and what I've had. We've never kind of had like open evenings in the kind of way that I don't know like maybe like secondary schools maybe had them and maybe that's kind of yeah maybe it is more of a secondary thing you sort of open up a stall and and show your wares off to, to parents that's always quite yeah nice. in primary it's just they not necessarily days as such it's just if enough you know if enough yeah. um, parents kind of contact the school they're just like oh yeah well you know just come in and we'll just take you around so they yeah, can watch us for a little bit and um, they gate, gate, into the office gate duty or playground duty Playground duty because it just gives you a great time to kind of build relationships up with those kids. I think. Really good. Uh, PE or RE? 
Ari. Hey. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm, I've decided I'm not actually going to put out any episodes where people choose PE. I thought uh, that might be the case, so I was like, I'll... Yeah, it's a gatekeeping question, careful. really. If that happens, the recording is stumped. <laughs> not really. I mean, you know, PE is great. Uh, where did you... So this is just to get an idea of kind of how you end up where you are. Where did you start teaching? Uh, where do you... Where are you now? And what was the journey in between? I mean, yeah, so I'll kind of keep this as short as possible. Um, but it's not the most straightforward journey. So I started um, in... Ark Wembley in September 2013. Uh, long story short, by February half term, just before February half term of the following year, I was asked to leave because it was not going so well for me. And I've kind of touched upon the reasons for that um, and other podcasts and bits like that. Um, so then, obviously, you know, you have to reevaluate your life after that kind of happens and the yeah. career that you've kind of wanted to do for so long and you've been told you're not good enough effectively um you know so you do like a bit of supply and then you kind of get a bit comfortable and so then i managed to find a nice kind of school that worked out really well for me worked there for five four five years mm-hmm. um having to restart the nqt year from scratch so effectively nqt september 2014 uh, and I am now uh, five years, six years on, uh, an assistant head teacher for teaching and learning across a small primary only mat in southeast England. That's fantastic. That's great. I mean, I think it was really compelling. I, I, get, I won't get you to go into all the details because, as you say, on Kieran's uh, Thinking Deeply About Primary Education podcast, it was so compelling to hear to that, that whole story um, of how you got to where you are. I, I particularly uh, enjoyed hearing about your long commute because. I'm in South End. I work in South London. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that, that rang some bells with me. Um, great stuff. So as I say, if you want to catch the whole of the, the Neil Armand story arc, if you want to be clued in on all those details, uh, Kieran's podcast is the best place to go. What do you think the highlight of that, that arc has been for you? I think the highlight of it is seeing how to nurture teachers properly in that I think I could have been successful at ARC because looking back at it, I think the pedagogies that ARC kind of go after, the kind of, you know, the Douglas mob, teach like a champion stuff. And I imagine, you know, now it's very much knowledge rich curricula, although they weren't as hot on curriculum when I was, was there. Um, and certainly, you know, we were having six data drops a year and, you know, this was a, something of pride for them you know they proud they pride themselves and mean oh yeah you know we do six data drops and that means you know we're really on top of assessment which means you know we really plug your gaps and you know i'm pretty certain if you asked you went to them now and said oh you know do you do six data drops i imagine the answer is probably no yeah so i think the benefit for me from that was understanding how you can nurture teachers uh, in a way that means that you know they do stay in the uh, profession because I'm, you know, I'm sure you know what is it about you know, a third of teachers who went to leave within about you know five years and I was very nearly kind of one of those teachers and I think we need to make sure we do whatever we can to make sure that teachers don't leave the profession because it's not as if we have a a long queue of people who are wanting to get into it right now. Absolutely. I think 2013, uh, to have that experience with Doug Lamov is was early days uh, for that sort of pedagogy. 
being widespread and then also not combining that with lots of workload reduction and a and a, a sort of knowledge rich curriculum i think all those three threads have really come together in the last few years in a, yeah. in a much better way i think you need all three of them really um to, to be successful and this nurturing approach that you talk about so that's that's good to, to know that that kind of made a positive impression in the long run uh i certainly i mean at the time i kind of looked at it and was like Ugh, you know what an awful awful experience but kind of you know in the last kind of two or three years actually i've looked back on it and i've been like yeah okay you know there were things where they were definitely in the wrong and there's i think i allude to in um kieran's podcast you know there were just things that i wasn't ready for teacher training and you know the way that university-based ITT was at the time yeah to go from university-based ITT in 2013 to ARC Academy 2013 sounds like <laughs> an intense experience yeah um and then the next question is what the low light of your teaching career is uh is there something in particular that you think you reflect on now that feels feels like it might be in the low point <sighs> It might be a bit of a comedic story. I've been mean, at the time; it certainly wasn't comedic, but it was. Just, I think it just goes. It kind of really hits home the idea of you know pre-planning and making sure you know risk assessments, all that thing. I am not a massive fan of paperwork for paperwork's sake. Yeah. Okay. If I can get away, if I can not do paperwork, I will absolutely not do paperwork. We were on a school trip. I was teaching year six. School trip going into central London. This was when I school was still in um, central London taking the tube and kid gets off at the wrong stop. Just one. <laughs> those doors start, those doors close. Oh. At the time, like, you know, I was like, this is career ending. Like, <laughs> this is going to yeah. get out. This is like, this is like the Daily Mail are going to find us out and it's going to be, you know, they're going to go through my Facebook or whatever and find some you know, dodgy graduation photo being like, you know, this, <laughs> this teacher, how could he have been left with, you know, in charge of, however many kids it was yeah. um but you know because all the pre-planning had gone into it you know they were really clear on what the procedures were you know should this happen you know we always tell them you know if this is the case mm. you know you stay on the platform if there is someone in tfl uniform you go next to them but you go to the, no one else obviously this is a major then you know benefit of you know you don't do your travel during rush hour time you, mm. you accept that you're going to plan that trip to get there at 11 and not 10 so you're not traveling through people with briefcases and backpacks and you know those kind of commuters yeah. um the end of the story he absolutely fine like he just sat himself on a bench i don't think anyone can tfl there but you know then the you send an adult off at the next stop straight back picks him up you know obviously you then have to tell the parent oh by the way you know this happened but honest yeah. mistake but That's at the time amazing. i was That's like oh this is like <laughs> awful and now thinking back of that i was like you know what it's quite a comedic light-hearted you know low light of the career kind of yeah losing a child that's great and that kid is probably <laughs> like in year 11 now or something like that and probably has yeah, really, God, must be. really good memories of of being stranded at some central london tube station yeah. uh, i think the idea of having that conversation with the parent at the gate terrifies me slightly oh uh, it terrifies me i imagine having a conversation you know i, I lost your child yeah i'd be like oh uh you're the head teacher. Maybe this is more of like a head conversation <laughs> that maybe it needs to come from there. I think that goes, you know, good relationship with the parents and, and the kid was good about it and was honest, you know, oh yeah, I, you know, I got off at the wrong stop. 
Yeah. Oh, well, that's good. Yeah. Okay. Well, that is a that's a good low light and a good low light with a good conclusion and it's a good reason to have a well filled out risk assessment before going. Yeah. To as well. Um. So you're. I mean, I would say you're best known as a bit of a curriculum bod, if that is okay to call you a bod. Um, I'm happy to be a bod. I don't. Yeah. Well known. <laughs> not sure in our little bubble that is Twitter. Yeah, potentially. Yeah, okay. yeah. Well known amongst perhaps people who might take the time to listen to a podcast called Powerful Curriculum. Uh, <laughs> it. I mean, uh, for me. Like, I don't know if I've said this to you before, but when I sort of got offered the opportunity to go and work in primary, I think if I hadn't followed you on Twitter before that, you and Elliot Morgan and Shannon Doherty and a few other people, I wouldn't have taken that opportunity at all because I no. didn't. You're, the way that you talk about primary, and in particular primary curriculum, transformed my view of primary teaching um, maybe oh, two or three years ago. Uh, so from my point of view, I'm really looking forward to the conversation we're going to have about curriculum, um, because now I'm in the position of being a primary teacher. But I also remember what it was like when I was a secondary teacher, um, that this was a completely different view of curriculum than what I'd heard from some other people in the se in the primary sector. Um, what do you think are the sort of key principles that lie beneath a coherent primary curriculum? We'll start off with a huge question. Yeah, let's just, you know, <laughs> and what, you're going to give you about know, two minutes on the timer. Off you go. Yeah. yeah. Um, I guess it's, you know, obviously stipulating this is just my interpretation of what I think a primary curriculum will be. There will be others out there who will think what I'm saying is absolute madness. There'll be some saying that, oh, you're just trying to recreate a secondary version within the primary system, whatever. You know, I think one of the great things about curriculum is that it is just this entity. <laughs> there is no kind of set right way, wrong way as such. We might have opinions about what the best way is, but, you know, there's no kind of certainty there of what is. So for me, it's definitely this, you know, Michael Young, powerful knowledge, and I think at that age, we've certainly had at primary, you know, very skills-led curriculum, which I think, you know, Daisy Christodoulou has done, a, I, in my view, has you know, a pretty good job of putting that, those ideas to bed and the, the idea of skills leading the curriculum and kind of this idea of generic skills. So we want these kids to be problem solvers, to be analytical, you know, evaluative, great, but actually we can't do that outside of the subject domains. So I definitely think a curriculum led on um, powerful knowledge for primary children is absolute core. Another reason for that is, you know, at that age, children, I'm sure I'm hopefully now you'll be able to see it from your experiences, children are sponges. And they're at that stage where actually they really want to learn and they're really happy to learn. You know, you don't, I'm paraphrasing, generalizing massively, but I don't, think you get as much resistance to learning in primary as you do kind of in that maybe year eight to year nine hormones start playing up. You haven't got that kind of like social pressure to act kind of cool and where, you know, we seem to be in a society where learning isn't deemed particularly cool, but certainly not, you know, really good geographical understanding or historical understanding or understanding around different world religions. Mm. So I think, and you know, at primary, you really have them for, I would say, you know, from year, obviously, you know, early years, key stage one, really important. You could do lots and lots of really interesting, really 
good things with them and they can get some really you know good meaty chunky learning but you're definitely kind of laying the foundations i think from like year four five and six you can really capitalize on those three years and you know metaphorically throw the kitchen sink at them and kind of all this kind of really interesting powerful knowledge yeah. um linked with that then is this idea that, you know it's quite it's a uh, you know, concept driven. So I think for me, this idea of concept is a great way to think about and kind of bridge that gap between what a primary what a typical primary school teacher might consider a cross curricular approach to perhaps what, um, you know, what I would consider a cross curricular approach, we're not thinking about, right, we're going to take a generic theme like water, and we're going to put that in the middle of an A3 piece of paper. And I'm going to think, right, okay, well, my geography is clearly going to be the water cycle and rivers. Um, history is going to be, well, this would depend on how good their historical knowledge is. They might make some really, you know, link, you can kind of like get into like, okay, civilizations, you kind of need water to, you know, that agricultural society for civilization to flourish okay fine re i don't know this the symbolism of water you know um symbolism yeah, of you know, water baptism and all that kind of thing i think if you give that to the right person it probably can work but i think this idea of concepts just kind of helps cement those ideas far more which don't um, kind of knock down the subject disciplines as much. So if you were to think of something like resources as a concept, obviously you're getting you know, plenty of things from geography there. In history, it's this abundance of resources that actually enables, uh, you know, the ascent of man and for, you know, for what it's worth, you know, from going from that nomadic society and that hunter-gatherer into that kind of civilization it's because we had this abundance of resources which meant we were starting to you know we had to find something to do with our time and then i think you know the kind of rich resources that you can have then in you know re and kind of the resources that kind of people in different religions might take and what they kind of the resources that they produce as a result of that religion and their beliefs i think that can be a nice kind of almost kind of middle I don't want to say middle of the road because it feels like you're sacrificing too much either way, but kind of a way of kind of bringing those kind of two sides of, uh, you know, only the subjects and the subjects only, or no, you know, all cross curricular. It kind of it's, might be a way to kind of bridge that divide. And again, you know, concepts they change the way that we see the world. Um, and I think again, especially at primary for a good coherent primary curriculum, you know, you do have to put the disciplinary knowledge in there where it can. You do need to understand, you know, what is it that history is that is special how do we know when we're going from history and we you know we're kind of merging on or verging into you know some kind of ethical philosophical argument about you know whether it was it right for us to invade whatever country the british empire decided to invade so many years ago um half the world um more than that more than three quarters i think you know so i think for me just to kind of briefly summarize and then i'll be quiet and you can give you a chance to come back at <laughs> some of this yeah. um powerful knowledge uh concept led um staying true to the subject disciplines mm. do you think this um do you think that desire to find a middle way between the the sort of very strict disciplinary boundaries and the more topic-based approach do you think that is 
almost self-preservation so that your ideas are palatable in primary or is that genuinely held you wouldn't go down that more strict subject-based you know approach i think it's a way to kind of bring people along that journey and to kind of almost you know unveil kind of a bit of light as to what this promised land might look like of pure um subject disciplines at a primary school um, I think it's important that we do kind of keep that because I think you know if you were and I'm not sure I might be completely wrong on this I would imagine that again massive generalization the vast majority of, of people who enter the primary profession aren't there to say oh I want to teach history geography and want to teach all the disciplines. I think they want to teach children. Mm. And kind of at that stage, at the primary level, the trade-off is fine, you don't have to specialize in a subject, but actually you need to be a genericist in as many of them as possible. Yeah. And so I think that idea of having just like, if you were to advertise your um, school as, you know, uh, oh, you know, we're primary school, but we're very, you know, geography, I'm wondering whether that would actually appeal. It would appeal to me. The reason why I went into primary education was because, you know what, I actually cannot decide, uh, you know, what subject I'd want to teach at secondary school. And I don't want to deal with pubescent year nine-year-olds whose worlds are falling apart because the partner they've had for three days has decided to, you know, break up with them. It's, yeah. That fills me with dread. It's giving me flashbacks to having been <laughs> formed for two years. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. It's I've never really had that much thought myself about what it is that drives people into uh, into primary teaching uh, because I've had those conversations about secondary about whether it's more about the subject or about the the the, the job necessarily. So it's interesting to think about that. Um, I wanted to touch on um, something that you would it be fair to say you're you're best known for uh, your your idea of the box set curriculum? I feel like it's where where I see your name name pop up fairly regularly. It's um, also quite worrying because it probably means I've peaked already. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's still there's still opportunities. I'm sure that um, I'm sure there's more out there. Um, <laughs> what, could you possibly just explain the idea of a box set curriculum? Um, I've used it myself uh, in CPD in my school talking to people because I love a metaphor and I just think it's a I just think it's a, such a great metaphor for the curriculum. So yeah, I'll kind of. Um, merge kind of this question and what I saw is the next question into mm -hmm. one. So um, Daniel Willingham talks about in um, Why Don't Children Like School, he talks about this idea of like shallow knowledge and if you kind of have like the shallow understanding, the best way to kind of bring meaning or if you can't make any meaning at all is, you know, analogy or metaphor. And I think I was quite fortunate. I think kind of like my stars aligned in several areas in that Ofsted were going through this um, particular change. I had just been made curriculum leader uh, for our school, not as a result of the Ofsted change, but um, I'm not sure how familiar you are, kind of in the old kind of progression model, I guess, of um, primary school kind of career process, progress would be that, you know, teacher, then you'd take on uh, a non-core non subject, which was like, you know, just look after it, do, do a bit of a book look. And then you'd take on like one of the core subjects, maths, English, whatever, and it's like you know a bit of power then. Um, so it didn't kind of have this kind of crudence that it does now. 
so I made that and I thought, Do you know I want to make a really good use of this. And so as you do, you watch Game of Thrones yeah. and you kind of, you know, I think we were probably only about season like two or three, so it was when it was still pretty decent. Um, and I could just kind of, and I don't know how it is, I was looking at science actually. And I was really looking at ways that we could um, really kind of tie up and make science really cohesive. Because in terms of a progression of knowledge, the actual uh, national curriculum you know, is pretty good, but you'd still have problems of children going from, right, okay, you know, we're doing animals, including humans. You know, they do that. They do a, a unit of animals, including humans, you know, beginning in year one. But when you ask them, you know, what did you do in year one about it or year two or year three or year four, it's still kind of, eh, I'm not really sure. And so I was just looking at ways you could tie that up, tie that up, tie that up. And as I was watching Game of Thrones, it's just one of those weird, like it wasn't me kind of thinking hard about it whatsoever. It's just, oh yeah, I can really kind of see how a really good box set like Game of Thrones, Line of Duty, whichever box set you want to, you've, you've seen, really kind of ties up these idea of curriculum in that you have, you know, you have your episodes within a series. And so obviously, you know, each episode could stand for a standalone lesson, however you want to kind of view it. And obviously, you know, each lesson progresses in that it's trying to answer a, a plot or a narrative of that season. Each episode will, you know, then you kind of have like, you know, your introduction, it's kind of like starts off nice and easy, nothing too difficult to begin with it kind of relaxes you into it you know, get that motivation to you know okay fine you know you've caught my attention let's move on it then gets through that season and then you think oh yeah okay you know and actually there's something bigger going on here so although this plot has been resolved you're kind of always like dropping that other little bit of there's something bigger here so i want to go back to it and equally you know within the episodes there's that plot structure. So when you think about it, you know, there's that kind of three plot structure of that kind of the whole overarching narrative, the narrative kind of within just the individual seasons and then the narratives within the um, actual episodes. And that for me just made a lot of sense as to how we can view that curriculum and really kind of not rush into the depth of things, but actually we have all this time. And if we build it on this narrative, whatever narrative that, um, Yes, schools wish to kind of build it on. I have my own ideas of what that narrative should be. Um, it just makes a way of understanding how this curriculum fits together. And then you, you can take the, as with all metaphors, you can take it as far as you want to really. Then you have to get, oh, right, okay. So cross-curricular must be things like, right. So when, at that time, there was talk about doing a sequel of, um, Game of Thrones. So I was like, right, okay, so that's going to be set in the same universe. There's going to be that similarity in characters. There's going to be nods to what happened in the main Game of Thrones to what's going on in this sequel. It's going to be, you know, similar locations, similar characters. There might be, you know, similar themes. And that's kind of where the idea then of that kind of that meaningful cross-curricular comes along. That They're still quite distinct in that, of course, you can watch one, not watch the other. But if you're someone who's watched both and you have knowledge of both, that kind of depth and understanding of everything and how it all links together just really does, you know, 
transformed and how you see what the action that then plays out. Yeah. And then I went into it in like a granular level of being like, oh, right, okay, so, you know, every episode starts with a previously on, you know, Game of Thrones. And obviously it's not just a random, you know, no one's gone there and been like, right, you know, just find any 30-second clip of the last episode and throw it on there. You know, it's all per the clips that they show you for, you know, 20 seconds, whatever. You know, it's all purposely there to prepare you. And so that's like your activating of your prior knowledge. And, you know, I'd found Rose and Shine at this point, so I could just see how it was all coming together and as a a framework to kind of view curriculum especially for primary school teachers because you know we haven't we haven't had that time because as i said we're not experts in these subjects we are kind of like genericists mm. we haven't had that time to really think about curriculum in that kind of structure in that kind of depth that's so <laughs> such a great explanation i love this idea of the the more granular the more it's usually the more you dig into metaphors the more they fall apart but with this one i tend to find the more you dig into it the more you a you want to kick yourself because you think i can't believe i'm <laughs> this metaphor but b the more it works because i was thinking today about it and i was thinking about i find it really helpful to imagine lesson planning in using that episodic format so uh, having that recap at the beginning having the hook at the end into the next lesson yeah. uh, making those connections between the two lessons but also i do some video editing uh for for youtube videos and i think about the way in which i use clips uh in a youtube video and how one flows into another and things like that and then i was thinking about rose and shine and chunking and uh you know moments in a lesson that i might transition or or moments where i go from one sort of theme where we're reading to one where we're writing so it is a, a metaphor that is that is very um fecund i suppose that's the right word what a horrible right. word is, is the word fecund uh but it's it's one that keeps giving really and and as i say i used it in cpd myself because i wanted to explain um two things i wanted to explain uh the 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 benefit of um disciplinary boundaries so the fact that you could the medium is the same between different dvds uh different series mm -hmm. you know, the way that we teach it is the same but actually there are unique story arcs within each subject yeah um so instead of saying that it was you know set in the same universe i was kind of making the point that 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 they are quite distinct universes um they might interconnect but you wouldn't imagine necessarily a particularly meaningful crossover between line of duty and i don't know uh yeah line of duty and game of thrones it's yeah i think i too i think i probably did take the uh the metaphor too far and one of them i managed to somehow get like whole school structures in there so like and related it to like direct instruction in like the sense that you have a a script which kind of keeps you on track yeah i think that's the problem is it actually like i say is quite a fertile metaphor but people do, people don't have the patience for a metaphor that you stretch that far um yeah, exactly. if, if it fits too neatly then they'll be suspicious that you're sort of bending things to fit into that metaphor, uh, which is something I've learned through my own painful experiences. Because um, <laughs> I love a metaphor. I thought what we could do is perhaps, because I struggled coming to primary school with this term foundation subjects. Right. In secondary, my impression is that foundation subjects are English, maths, and science. And I turned up oh, really? primary school and people started talking about foundation subjects being not English, maths, and science, um, because the idea is that those are the foundational subjects that all students take, and then everything else is 
is optional to some extent after GCSE. So what uh, for, for people in secondary, what do you mean as a primary teacher when you talk about foundation subjects? So for us, that's anything other than what we would call the uh, the core subjects. That's English, and that would include all elements of literacy, writing and reading, maths. And then science is a really funny one. It tries to call itself a, uh, I know you say you don't like metaphor, but it really is, I feel like it's the will of the subjects, thinking about the in-betweeners. It's like the one who's like, yeah. he's trying to be with the cool kids, yeah. wants to be accepted. Mm. Um, and he's in the gang, but he's not in the gang. I do feel sorry for primary science. I think it's, when they get to secondary school, they're in a lab, they have gas taps and Bunsen burners. And, you know, there's a sense that at any moment there could be a huge explosion that's going to be really exciting or there's going to be a chlorine leak or hydrochloric acid is going to be spilt somewhere. <laughs> and, and that just feels thrilling. Whereas my experience of doing science practicals, I mean, they do love it. Don't get me wrong, but we had a couple of LED torches and a bottle of water um, and, you know, yeah. diffraction. And that was... That was really the highlight of science in year six. Uh, then 40 minutes crafting parachutes out of different material to sellotape yeah. onto eggs to then drop off the <laughs> semi-highest point of the school that you can find and time it. And it's <laughs> We tried to make a periscope and it was one of those occasions where you're just like, you know, the last page of the booklet, you can tear it out. And if you put these flimsy mirror bits of mirrored card in, you make a periscope. And um, I started it probably about 16 seconds before playtime. I was like, right, let's go get the scissors out and came, yeah. back, came back from playtime to just utter carnage and spent easily twice as long tidying up and than than I think maybe two children were successful in making something that was even approaching approaching a periscope. Um so foundation subjects then maybe not let's let's give science its dues, let's include it in core. No, we'll give subjects. science its dues. So it what would you say are the foundation subjects that you would imagine have a pretty central place on a key stage two curriculum? History, geography, for sure, because when you kind of think about this kind of topic approach, those are the ones that stem from it. Mm. In Key Stage 2, you can't really escape modern foreign language, although I personally don't think it should be there, mm. um, if you have no one to teach it well. Art or DT, that tends to change every kind of term or half term, depending on how it's done and PE tends to um, be there. Um, I'm sure you'll notice I've left off RE because yeah. I think RE deserves to be there. Um, whether it is in there, in the majority of the schools, I kind of maybe question that a little bit. And that yeah. is just based on kind of no evidence whatsoever and absolute un no, it's based on evidence. I mean, it's based on Natra, Natra, who are the subject association, have found it is not taught in in lots of primary schools. Oh, well, there you go. It is it based is on taught, It's it's often taught by not that this is necessarily a bad thing, but it's often taught by HLTAs, or it's taught on a Friday afternoon, or it's taught yeah. for PPA cover or something like that. Um, yeah, when I was on Kieran's podcast. Um, my big thing was RE isn't special. It's a foundation subject. It's a humanities subject. Mm -hmm. just give it its due even if it means that it's not going to be regularly like an hour in the curriculum just do history geography re you know uh, on, on rotation what do you think um thinking back to kind of your time maybe planning some of those subjects what are some of the pitfalls that you maybe have fallen into in the past and then how would you reflect on those now 
Um, I guess you missed the cool grid, didn't you? The cool grid. I've never heard of the cool grid, and I've You've never had. heard of the cool grids. The kind of like it's the like the what I know. Well, so it's like no now. So that's what the K. So no now. Well, it's cool with a K. Oh, it's cool with a K. Yeah, K W L. <laughs> so it's like cool. Okay, great. Because we love you know we love acronyms in primary. So yeah, so it's like the K stands for like no now. So that's where if you're doing the so the units decided. So you say okay, I'm going to do the Romans. So you go to this group of you know, thirty nine year olds who some of them may have learned the Romans, some of them the vast majority probably haven't them, and you kind of use a lesson it's about an hour to say right, kids in groups cause it has to be done in groups at the time. Groups about you know four or five. On this, you know, in this part of the paper, on this third of the paper, I want you to write everything that you know about the Romans. Surprise, surprise, they don't know too much about the Romans. The, um, the second third is the what you would like to know. So, right, children, you know nothing about this topic and you've shown me this, but I want you to now write everything you would like to know about the Romans. Okay, so go around and make sure they're all not, you know, stabbing each other or whatever with their pencils and they're on task. And you kind of get, you know, the weird and wonderful things like, oh, what did they eat? Like, where did they live? And then kind of the expectation was by the next week, you would have maybe like a five or six lesson sequence of learning planned based on common themes that you'd picked out from that second, third. Yeah. You would then teach it. And then your final lesson of the sequence would be the, they'd fill out the L part, which is the learnt. So then they could write down in there everything that they've learned about their mm. Romans. And so that kind of then, it wasn't there to artificially show progression. Oh, look, I've known nothing about a topic. And then surprise, surprise, after six weeks of being taught it, I learned something about the Romans. It, it kind of feels like it reminds me of Michael Young's powerful knowledge in it's so arbitrary. Like there's no kind of, it's very much his, his idea about knowledge that is determined by the children, determined by discovery. It, you know, there are things in these history units in the national curriculum that are not arbitrary, that are substantive, that children are going to need to know a for progression into secondary, but B also just culturally to exist in the world. Um, and if you're Absolutely. concentrating on on those social elements of history, you know what what how how were how were children treated? What did they wear? What was dentistry like in in Rome? Uh, I've my main memory of doing Rome as a child in about year four was just lots of talk about using urine in different ways. Yeah, Romans use urine for makeup or to brush their teeth or as an antiseptic. And at um, worst, you may have made a Roman shield, and that would have been called art or DT, or it would have been called the history lesson itself. And yeah, know. I think it's. I mean, one of the big shocks for me, delving more into primary, and I guess it's a lot less the case now, especially amongst primary folks I know on Twitter. But uh, was just how arbitrary primary planning can be. Um, I think maybe it comes up more on Facebook in in certain groups on Facebook oh. where people are uh, like. I've always said this, I always caveat this with, it's not their fault, you know, it's their environment, but just the idea that you wouldn't know what you were planning, you wouldn't know what you're going to teach six weeks in advance, 
even if it was just an outline plan or a knowledge organizer or you know whatever it is uh do you do you think you've been that arbitrary in the past or have you oh massively that? so i remember when i first found um i found edu facebook before before i found edu twitter and i was like this is the answer to my prayers <laughs> Yeah. yeah, there's a group here of people who I can write down, oh, I'm teaching whatever it might be next term, like, hit me with all your ideas that you have. And you'd have, you know, everything from, you know, yeah, okay, that's a decent idea to just a, you know, downright bizarre with teaching phases of the moon using Oreos. So yeah, it's definitely kind of that personal journey I've gone on from being like, okay, actually, I think we're, yeah, we're a really funny one, because we want I feel primary, we're not very good at um, balancing out that autonomy that we want versus the reduced workload. It's like, because I personally find that, um, I think there's a meme somewhere about it, I'm not sure, or a, a gif, no, a meme, where it's, um, it's Mufasa and it's Simba. And it's that one where they're looking over the pride lands, like the sun's coming up and Mufasa says like everything the sun touches is yours or something like that. And everything that, you know, isn't like you stay out of. And I think it was the wording on it was everything in the morning is um, timetabled. Everything in the afternoon is yours. And so that meant because typically your English, your core subjects are English, your maths, within that obviously that reading and writing was all done in the morning kind of heavily monitored and because that's what the accountability structure is it's how well are you doing on your sats there's almost like a an unwritten kind of contract kind of understanding that as long as you kind of sort out the core stuff we'll leave you alone in the afternoon that was just fine but obviously that's going to lead to greater workload in things yeah it's it's um, but it gives those teachers that autonomy that they want in that great okay i'll play your game and i'll do those the morning i will play the game of the school and i'll play the game of the said the game i'll play by the rules of what you want me to kind of teach in there but in the afternoons that time is then mine and i feel like judging from edgy facebook obviously can't generalize too much taking away even though you're going to promise them less workload by because you know we're going to have a really kind of um, succinct scheme of work we're going to tell you what we effectively going to, we're going to tell you what to teach your autonomy will come from how you choose to teach it although you know you can obviously then talk about what effective teaching is and what effective teaching isn't mm. um, and argue whether there is then actually that autonomy but i think that's quite a difficult um mindset for most primary school teachers to kind of get their heads around and change and understand that actually by losing that autonomy you might then not be posting on facebook and um, you know kind of in the middle of your holidays or on the saturday being like oh i've got you know th three lessons on um the vikings what do i do so i think there's a really kind of interesting balance and mindset as to how those two factors of autonomy versus workload and how they interplay together at the primary level which might be different um to how it is at the secondary level yeah uh, i think it's interesting that where primary teachers have more both more experience and probably more expertise from their training and cpd and things in teaching english and maths 
and that tends to be the more heavily structured, heavily monitored side of things for obvious reasons. Um, and where they have less expertise in the foundation subjects, that's kind of where they're left to their own devices, uh, which is, I'm personally a huge advocate for really heavily centrally planned foundation curriculum. Uh, I mean, we have booklets in our school, which, you know, the, the feeling at the beginning was, what was that going to restrict teacher autonomy? But, you know, you, you don't have to follow what's in the booklet necessarily, as long as you do the writing elements of it. And and teachers' expertise can shine through, but it also scaffolds and supports teachers uh, if they don't have that that expertise. So I was really interested in thinking about um, again. This is almost it almost feels slightly arbitrary as to what gets included in every school. I mean, every school's curriculum because it's on the on the national curriculum, uh, and what doesn't. And some schools go slightly outside the national curriculum, and there isn't a national curriculum for RE. Um, I was thinking if you had sort of double the curriculum time magically in in re history and geography yeah are there certain topics that you would teach either in huge amounts of more more depth or uh that you would I introduce into those three curriculum areas that that aren't currently on the national curriculum so we're quite fortunate in that in our um and my setting we um have two hours for history of geography a week so that's quite nice so we kind of probably already doubled that time so if I was to I'm not going to double that time to four hours but if I gave myself an additional hour um I think definitely there are a few areas that I would like to uh explore I would certainly like to look at um where we are we're um probably quite a similar context so we're Dartford and we've got some um Green High which you know not too far off from Medway so it's kind of real kind of like this left behind white middle um white working class kind of areas um so this is on the curriculum but um i when i moved in i did get a chance to kind of i wrote a lot of curriculum for them but i didn't get much of a opportunity to kind of take things out and put things in that i would have personally wanted to so i definitely think there um we should have uh, the kingdom of benin in there some african african kingdom um because again I, I think you know you have to take these children outside of their experiences and so they need to really understand, you know, right, okay, well, you know, African kingdoms, you know, this is, you know, so far removed from what you understand and your understanding of, you know, from you coming from these kind of small little, you know, working class white backgrounds that, you know, this is something that's really, really important for you to know. Uh, linked with that as well, you know, there's some other African kingdoms. I'm currently reading um, King Leopold's Ghost. I don't know if you've read that. And it's about, you know, all the atrocities of the you know, King Leopold II of Belgium going into the Congo and all the madness that, um, you know, went on there. And I think, you, obviously, you know, in the current climate right now, like Black Lives Matters, you know, you can't or you shouldn't try to, you know, I think children have the right to kind of know, do you know what, we sometimes, yeah, the Europe has not been great to, you know, the people of Africa and I think they deserve to kind of know the atrocities that you know have gone on there but equally you know they need to know that um you know everything in Africa wasn't exactly all perfect at the same time either you know they had their own issues um but this kind of imperialist ideology that was going around at the time and expansionism certainly caused you know massive issues in kind of how that you know, it's even to now how Congo is right now. So I think that'd be a really interesting one to do. Um, I'm absolutely enthralled with the golden age of Islam. Mm, yes. 
Um, Baghdad is such a fascinating um, place to kind of like really kind of study, especially, um, you know, you've got the um, everything that happened, but I can nerd out on this for quite a while, but um, I've read, what was it? The, have you read the book, um, The Map of Knowledge? No, but do you know, um, someone said to me the other day, oh, Neil recommended me this book, The Map of Knowledge. I think you'd really enjoy it. Uh, yeah. Yeah, buy it. It is just fascinating. I read a book um, last summer called Baghdad. I think it was called Baghdad City of Blood that was like a history of Baghdad from from thousands of years up to the present day. And when um, on the episode I did with with Kieran talking about, we did a sort of like, oh, his, our tier list was talking about uh, religious historical periods and yeah. the golden age of islam was i think the only one i put in the s tier and yes. i at the moment i do a place study on jerusalem at the end of year six mm -hmm. if i was to even have another half term at any point in the curriculum i would put in a place study of uh baghdad to go alongside that yeah it's just it is there in the curriculum but i think it's just yeah you don't know what you don't know i think that you know imagine you've got six weeks of going through you know the rise of Baghdad and you know um everything that happened there in terms of um you know the scholarship that was going on there the trade that was going on there you know its geographical positions in regards to um the fertile crescent and all of that and how some Samaria and everything that was going on between there but also then you know it's that lovely link then as well with Islamic Spain so yeah you have that really interesting interplay then between um Islamic Spain with the Umayyad dynasty and how it all played out between him and uh, Al-Mansur in Baghdad. And yeah, just really fascinating. I think it really just kind of, I think it's a lovely cohesive tie between the Islamic world and the Christian world, which, you know, um, the Umayyads arrived in Southern Spain, you know, 755 AD. But I don't think, you know, we've made this idea of, you know, immigration being a relatively new thing mm. and you know this kind of cross-cultural ideas you know as if they never happened before you know multiculturalism and globalization but the truth is you know it's been there for you know, 1300 years so much so i'd love to do um yeah golden age of islam i think you could yeah i'd love to i probably will end up in my summer because this is the kind of sad person i am just spend a week of planning one and just putting it out there and say, you know, every child deserves to know this stuff. Mm. I'd also love to do the Crusades, yeah. the Renaissance, all the way up to England's Golden Age. That would be lovely. So that's the kind of like the history focus. Geography I wasn't actually too sure about, um, but I think the idea of natural resources and the inequality around natural resources would be an interesting thing to look at year five, year six, for sure. And field work, I don't think we do enough um, field work at primary. And I'm kind of really, I'm reading Mark Entz's book, Powerful Geography. And mm. the way he talks about field work makes me realise that, I, yeah, that's a kind of a weak point in my geographical understanding. And I probably haven't given enough thought to what that might look like. And it might be a nice way, you know, because get them out drawing these landscapes. Can they notice these features that we talk about, you know, take them into these, take them into the, towns into the cities do those kind of you know simple surveys of how many shops there are and versus how much you know, living um living accommodation there is for example could be really interesting that whole idea. area where you are in north kent is so rich for geographical <clears throat> field work you know you've got 
yeah, yeah massively. Yeah, you've got like the Medway just next to us. Yeah. Yeah, yeah really, really interesting. In terms of Ari, I think I would just really like, I think a really good solid coverage of the six main religions and then a real kind of in-depth focus on the similarities between the uh, Abrahamic ones, because I really don't think even because I've been not where I am now, but my previous school in Northwest London, uh, predominantly a Muslim community. When we eventually did do some RE, which was Christianity based, like even they weren't, they couldn't see those links between their, or they weren't aware of those links between Islam and uh, Judaism Christianity. So we were talking about the story of Moses at one point and they were like, oh, this is Musa. And I was like, who's Musa? And they're like, oh, well, you know, in Islam, it's, you know, and it's, you know, they tell me the story and like, oh, okay, well, you know, this is fundamentally pretty much the same story. And so I think that made them realize, oh yeah, okay, so we're, we're not so different after all. And I think the more you kind of study and look at, particularly, I think the history of RE, and I think that would be my biggest downfall if I ever had to plan RE would be that I'd be far too much interested in the history of the religion as opposed to actually focusing on the religion itself. But no, I think that'd be a really kind of interesting way to go down and look and kind of just make those connections really clear. So I think if you, if you have a year seven, a year seven child who kind of had understands, right. Okay. Here's the main beliefs of all six. And actually I really understand how uh, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam kind of have this shared connection. Mm. I think personally, that might be quite powerful and quite a good starting point for um, you guys in secondary school or for what would have been you in secondary school. Yeah, I strongly agree with that. Our, the RE curriculum I've just written is uh, does cover all six faiths, uh, but it is primarily Islam and Christianity. And then even in year one, drawing out the links between those two faiths all the way through the curriculum. Um, and then when they come to do Judaism as well, looking at that. So yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, I love that list. I think it's fantastic. I love uh, the idea of, I mean, uh, the Renaissance is something I'm really interested in outside of uh, teaching. And I don't know when when we would re when that really comes up, even up to GCSE uh, or the Crusades or I think African kingdoms are great as well. They're um, increasingly, I see African kingdoms. We've got a unit on Benin, uh, I think in year four, year five. So uh, that's probably a really positive move in the last few years. Definitely. Uh, I, um, I'm sure you know Stuart Tiffany, uh, <clears throat> Primary History of Mr. T on Twitter. Yeah. Um, he tweeted something, it reminded me of um, when the new national curriculum came in in 2014, of what the original history curriculum looked like. I don't know if you haven't seen it, but... Um, after this is finished like do google it because it caused a lot of uproar because it it was kind of stipulated that you had to teach things in chronological order um but actually the stuff that was on there i thought was phenomenal and i actually was like oh i'd actually really like to have taught that curriculum but um yeah it didn't happen yeah includes things like the crusades and it goes up to the renaissance so it kind of really give give you this kind of dan willingham talks about you know maybe we should think about some aspects of the curriculum being an inch um, an inch deep, but a mile wide. Yeah. So we're not kind of going straight into this kind of depth because we'd spend, you know, six 
I think we have about 12 lessons, I think, for kind of each, between 10 and 12 lessons for each kind of unit, because we have two hours, yeah. which is great and lovely. You get the depth, but you, at the end of the day, you know, they do leave primary school not knowing about the Renaissance, yeah, not knowing about the Reformation. It's, yeah. It's a really difficult balancing act. To it's hard. On that. I like it. I want it all happen. Yeah. Well, quite. And I mean, I I'm doing uh, the the job now of expect because obviously there's no Sats this year for year six. So one of our units that would normally be six weeks is ancient Greece is being expanded over twelve weeks. And so the depth that I can go into is amazing with these extra six weeks. But I think and and I'm not you know in charge of history in our school. Um, if I was, I might have said actually, is there another subject that we could cover in six weeks is there another topic mm. um, that doesn't appear elsewhere for example we really we do a, a great unit over 12 weeks which is london 1914 to 48 covering the first and second world wars and then the windrush generation as well nice. but actually that unit kind of skips over uh the holocaust skips over uh, most of a uh, fair bit of world war one things like that so it's the eternal struggle of the foundation curriculum. There's just not space. Yeah. Oh no, there is space. It's in year three. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I'll make this my last question because I had other questions that I wanted to talk about RE, perhaps selfishly, um, because um, those I, the ones I was really looking forward to. Yeah. Well, it was the same. I think it might be a running theme with these that I want to keep them under a, an hour so that they're quite listenable. But then I definitely want to have people come back and talk about uh, other subjects uh, that they haven't talked about in the first one. So maybe that can be something that we talk about uh, in the future. I think what I, I wanted to end on those is almost like I just love asking this question because I think it's so interesting. But what topic do you think you would do away with? I mean, it could be science, it could be history, it could be geography. Are there some topics that you just, you wouldn't be sad to see them leave the curriculum? I think going back to what, kind of linking back to what I said, I would get rid, and I'm a great believer in history, but I think I probably would get rid of key history, but only in key stage one. So I'm probably being a bit cheeky there in kind of how I'm interpreting what I can do. So do say if I'm breaking the rules too much, and I'll quickly think of something else. But just going back to that idea of, um, you know, curricula being uh, an inch deep and a mile wide, I think we go too too deep into in key stage one, where actually, if you kind of thought, if your history curriculum was just, you know what, we're going to read a story, and that story, and those stories are based on, you know, significant people based in ancient Greece, or, um, you know, King John, or, um, uh, yeah, it could be whoever, like, yeah, Florence Nightingale, all of those kind of normal ones, but you could actually get that breadth of everyone that you could do. I think instead of worrying too much about going straight into the depth of different things, I think that would really set them up better, uh, set the students up better for kind of when you can do that meaty breadth, the depth stuff, sorry, when they get to key stage two. I like the idea and I like I and of course stories are privileged in terms of how we uh receive yeah. and process information so use it especially in pieces one utilizing the story it's probably more useful than some other methods I mean I would I would say the same for RE I think key stage one RE could probably be replaced with and maybe it could be combined with um historical stories uh and, and discussion around those and maybe even kind of drama activities related to those yeah I think if you haven't seen the um 
core knowledge, the American version and kind of like the reading that they provide, it's all free. It's all just PDFs. Anyone can go to it and just download it. I think if, you know, if you took that as a model for your key stage one history curriculum, and it's like, you know what, just over the week, it's just 40, 45 minutes of story time with a few activities, a few questions in there, just to kind of keep everything you know flowing. And so it's not just you know, too passive. Um, I think that would be great. Yeah, yeah, and it, you know, you might have a, a fiction story time and a non-fiction story time uh, at different times during the day. I like that idea. Good. Well, I'm going to run with that. Actually, I think I might rethink some of the key stage one RE stuff that I'm doing at the moment um, in light of of making it more sort of story focused. So that's really interesting. Well, it's it is always a really interesting conversation to have with you about curriculum because I think you just have such a, um, and I think it, it's not just yourself, there are others as well, but you have a very clear idea in your head uh, of what a curriculum looks like from above, what it looks like from below, what it looks like in the classroom. Um, so it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much. Been a pleasure um, to be here. If people wanted to find you uh, on uh, Twitter or on your blog, where would they go? So the blog, they can find me at nuts about teaching um i'm hoping people i was surprised actually not many people actually understood the kind of uh, play on words in that and some took, people, took me two years i think two years i thought oh this is so obvious you know mr armand named after nuts so therefore nuts about teaching on twitter i'm at mr underscore armand ed and i'm always happy to talk and discuss curriculum with anyone at any point at any time and if i don't know the answer i'm kick myself not knowing it and i'll go and do everything i can to find out for you so great that's yeah, really generous do reach out fantastic and i hope people take you up on that as well i found it really useful bouncing some curriculum ideas off uh off you and uh, and getting some feedback on them so it's been great well thank you so much um i hope that you have a wonderful return to school on monday we're recording this just before we go go back is that something you're looking forward to yeah definitely definitely <laughs> um this this Zoom um, intending, I'm yeah, fed up of looking at people through screens right now. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know exactly how you feel. Uh, great. Well, thanks ever so much for coming on, and uh, do check out Neil's blog and his Twitter. Uh, thank you for listening. I'm hugely grateful to Neil for giving up his time to talk to us today about all matters curriculum. Hope you found that as interesting as I did in conversation. Do please follow the podcast on twitter at powerful curic powerful c-u-r-r-i-c you can follow me personally on twitter at mr smith re and do let me know what you make of the podcast it's a new project this is only episode two and i'm looking for all the feedback i can get hope you have a wonderful week and i will look forward to speaking to you soon